This is another message from many, many moons ago. Um, I know I've said this a few times. I always feel like I want to apologize to you guys for not bringing a new word. Uh, we are in a, in a time as a team of some intense thinking and praying and trying to walk through big questions so that we can sort of lay ourselves all on the table of the Lord and ask him to basically do with us what he wants. So we're continuing to work out those things and talk about those things. And just to be frank with you, this week was another week where it was pretty intensely um, focused on those things and and difficult to work through a new message. On top of that, I, I, I just sense that this message is something God has for us. And it's it just graciously confirmed in the songs selected that weren't necessarily part of that process. And then Kim's word. Um, and I just feel like once again, God is coming close and saying, I'm here and I want to talk to you. And that he would want to talk to us about some of the things in the message today. And the message today is really about dealing with regret. It's about dealing with guilt. Um, this is not hugely important, but just as a side note, I think this is probably my one of my two favorite messages I've ever preached in my life. I, some of that stuff is personal. Um, some of it is because of the beauty of God in this story and the honesty of God in this story. So I really hope that this speaks to you. It speaks to all of us. And it resonates with the idea that Kim had that God is calling for us to cut the cords of unhelpful past issues. Maybe unhelpful past issues as a church family, things that we've gone through. Or unhelpful past issues of our own personal lives. It's really a message about regret. It's about regret and about guilt. And how to deal with those things. And how God would have us respond. Regret's a sad word. It, it, it can be healthy in small doses. But for some, it can often devastate for a lifetime. We do things on purpose or by mistake. That can sometimes have lifelong consequences. Those consequences can cause us to live in the past so long. And so often. That we suck all the life out of the present. And damage our future. God knows that we do things we regret. He knows the things we're going to do before we ever come out of the womb. And he knows the temptation to live in regret and in guilt. So he fills his book with people who make devastating mistakes. And have to learn one way or another how to keep going. Have to learn one way or another what the solution to regret is. Here's what I think one of the most powerful solutions to regret is to treasure God more than what you may have lost to treasure God more than what you may have lost. It's not the most comforting ooey gooey (laughs) idea. It's not God saying, Oh, I'll give that thing back to you. You know, there are times where he does. There are times where he does restore the years, the locusts, Devour, And we'll see by the end of the message for all of us in a short time, he will return or we will rise and that will come to pass. But sometimes we live a long time with consequences and questions that don't go away. Regrets about loss through sin and the mistake 
but it's about loss. Some fault of yours, you may think you have lost the chance for a happy marriage. You made the wrong choice in a spouse. There are people who struggle with that regret. In all my years of being a pastor, all my 78,000 years, (laughs) I haven't been a pastor that long, but that's probably one of the most significant things. Did I marry the wrong person? How I raised my child, or I didn't raise my child. How I treated a fetus, a living being in my womb, an unborn baby. I went through an abortion, that kind of idea. Now I can never undo that. How you treated a parent. Broke that relationship and it's just not healed. And you know what? It may never heal this side of heaven. And you know what? If that person doesn't know the Lord, it will never heal. And you may have been part of doing damage, even terrible damage to that relationship. And you think you've lost the opportunity to live in a place of joy, to live in a place of rest, to live in a place of hope. Even to serve God in a way that might have been your life's hope. But if you and I can come to the place where we see that God is the greatest treasure there is. And if we can come to the place where we trust that he is not only the greatest treasure there is, but he's never left you. And that he's still with you. And that his love truly is better than life. then you can overcome regret. You can even overcome the consequences that you have to live with. The solution for regret is to treasure God more than what you may have lost. So we're going to take a look to kind of see this in the life of Moses. And one of the most, for me, one of the most heart-wrenching and one of the most amazing stories in Scripture. The context of this is that Moses has built the tabernacle in the wilderness. They've escaped from Egypt. They've gone through all the plagues. And they're in the desert. And God's called them to take the promised land. He called them pretty soon after they left Egypt to make their first move into what would become Israel. But you guys, most of you know the story. In unbelief, except for Caleb and Joshua, everybody refuses. They say, no, it's too hard. They're too big. It's too scary. We're out of here. We can't do this. So, in his anger... Yahweh declares that Israel will wander 40 years until all those people who said we can't do it, it's too hard, who were really saying, God, you're not faithful, by the way. That's what they were really saying. All those people are going to have to die and be buried in the desert as punishment for their unbelief. And instead of them, their children would be allowed to inherit the land. How's that for regret? Being one of those people, knowing that your future is walking around for 40 years in this desert. Because you wouldn't believe God. Well, in today's text, we're almost finished with those 40 years of wandering. Moses has been faithful to God and to Israel. All that time, interceding for the people again and again, enduring their grumbling. He has watched many thousands of those he left Egypt with die, including his own sister, Miriam. Finally, he's ready to lead the people into their final destination. It's the fulfillment of all they had been promised when they left Egypt so long ago. It's Moses' life mission 
It's the reason he met God at the burning bush. From an earthly perspective. It's the reason why God gave him all the authority he gave him in the rod through which God did so many miracles. It's the reason why he was essentially the leader over millions of people for decades. To get them to safety, to get them to rest, to get them to the promise that God had given them. Forty years he's been at this work. His life's goal. And on one hot, dry day in the desert, Moses comes face to face with his fallenness. And he buys himself a lot of regret. And that's what we're going to read today. Now, this is in um, Exodus. I'm sorry. Lord, have mercy on me. I don't. (laughs) I have the text up there, right? Okay. Numbers 20. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here? Both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. When I read this, I want to just ask, you know, I mean, now I'm familiar with the story, but especially as I was becoming acquainted with it, just can this be real? Like, God, are you serious? There's part of me that understands God's holiness and he can burn us up any moment. But there's another part of me that just wants to say 40 years of faithfulness. And look at the character of the people that Moses is dealing with for 40 years. After all they've been through in the desert, 40 years later, all the mistakes, all the challenges. And would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. I mean, these people, they're not a band of brothers around them. They're not, there's not a lot of encouragement. I mean, 
Moses has led a people who at times have tried to kill him. 40 years of faithfulness and one bad day. One rash moment. Moses loses his temper. And now, because of one mess up, he's got to carry the same fate as all those faithless, unbelieving Israelites. And they're, they're gonna, their, their children are going to know, right? They're not going to go to the promised land, but their children are going to know that Moses wasn't allowed to come. Could you imagine the heartbreak? Could you, could you imagine the shame? Knowing that God had denied you what you thought was your life's mission because of your sin. Knowing it was something you did that made him say, you're not going. I mean, there's no question. And Moses is God's closest friend. We'll read about that later. Among the millions of people in Israel. Moses is God's, we might say, best friend in, among these people. And he's now the object of his anger and a severe rebuke in front of them all. Who already, many of them, are not his supporters. Could you imagine the regret? How many days and nights would Moses want to go back and just turn back the clock to that moment? Oh man, if I could just have just quelled my anger. If I could just rebuked myself before I lost that opportunity. But no, he didn't. He blew it huge. How many times would he plead with God to change his mind? That's one of the most heart-wrenching aspects of this story. In Deuteronomy 23, we read of apparently the last appeal. Verse 23. I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, Oh Lord God, You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. That good hill country in Lebanon. I think there are other times where Moses pleads with the Lord. I think this is the last one. But the Lord was angry with me because of you speaking to the people and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. I mean, I'm like, I'm not going to be your sympathetic counselor, Moses. Don't talk to me about this anymore. You're not going. And look at the core of Moses' plead. I want to see you. You can hear that implicit, what he's saying. God, I want to see you and your mighty acts in the reception of this land. It wasn't even let me be king. Let me be, let me be rich and powerful and famous. It was let me see your glory in the inheriting of this land. God says, no, you can't. And don't ask me again about it. Go up to the top of Pigsah. Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see Moses go and see it you're allowed to see it you can't touch it 
Joshua can touch it. And you, not only am I telling you that you're going to have to let him do it, you support him and you strengthen him and you get him in the right place to do it. Moses had no choice but to accept God's verdict. He was not even allowed to bring it up. No more living in the past, Moses. Cut it off. What is done is done. Sometimes we ask God and we beg him for mercy. And we see it in scripture. Sometimes he says, okay, I'll relent. Sometimes he doesn't. Not here. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all the Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain. That is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord's not taunting him. I mean, then God is saying, Moses, I'm going to let you see this. He made sure it was a very clear day or maybe he did something miraculous and took Moses through the air. I don't know, but the Lord doesn't say anything like that. That would be reading into it. But God made sure he could see this. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. Oh, like God, now are you just like rubbing it in? What is he doing? I mean, I want to kind of get in there and say, God, he heard you already. You already said this a few verses earlier. You don't have to tell him again. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And there Moses died, never having stepped in the land. More than any of these people, these millions of people, he had been used by God to get to them. How do you feel about God? Reading this. Superficial reading can tempt you and I to feel God is being too hard, right? I mean, we have to admit it's superficial because we know that God is always right and we're always wrong if we think he's wrong. We, we kind of argue with God to our own hurt. But the Bible doesn't explain much about this story in terms of all the whys. Like we don't. It would help if I understood more about what Moses had done. It doesn't unpack it clearly, but we know that what he had done was sin against God's heart. It wasn't primarily a sin against the people. It was something against God's heart. It was very serious to God. And when Moses struck the rock, instead of speaking to it, as God had commanded he was doing something very offensive to God. We're not told all the motivations that were going on in Moses' heart, but we're told enough to know that he was essentially taking on himself the glory that belonged to God. He was taking on himself alone the authority to deal with the people as he saw fit. Now, Moses was the Savior, and Moses was the Lord, and not God. Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? He said. He's putting himself in the center. Instead of God. And we do that, don't we? How often when my struggles with my kids, disciplining them or my anger, right? I'm just, it's so hard to keep in mind that I represent Yahweh. I don't represent myself. 
in marriage. I'm here for Yahweh to my wife. I'm not here for me. You know, if if I've got authority over my children, if I have authority over my wife as a husband, rightly, if I have authority over members of the church in some delegated, limited way, it's never my authority for my sake. It's always delegated for Yahweh's sake. And it's supposed to be servant authority. It's supposed to serve the people, not serve myself. But more than my wife or church members or my kids are offended, God is offended. And his glory is at stake in those moments. And so here, Moses exalts himself. He makes much of himself and he makes less of God. And that is something God will not abide. And it's not because God is afraid of Moses and he's in some sort of tyrannical, egomaniacal way, God is so afraid that Moses might steal his glory. No, God's very at peace with himself. But he knows that it's only just and right, that he should be the only one who gets glory in this universe ultimately. That our glory that he gives us, it is delegated glory. It is glory that points back to him. But he also knows it's not good for Moses or the people for them to not see and treasure God's glory, but rather to see and treasure the glory of man is poison. So Moses' act was very dangerous. It was dangerous before rebellious people who'd already lost a whole generation because their ways were more important to them than following and trusting God. So Moses is the leader of these people. He had no margin very little margin. I don't think God was looking for perfection in Moses any more than he's looking for perfection in any leader. But he had less margin to model disorder and usurping of authority before a people so given to rebellion already. They didn't need any help. So Moses is the leader of a stubborn, stiff-necked people. He, above all people, needed to really seek to try to model what it meant to follow Yahweh with humility and not pride-filled anger. And a humbled Moses would regret his pride for the rest of his life. A humbled Moses would regret his pride for the rest of his life. And I think that is the point of this whole story. And it ends better. But, 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 but this idea that what God is doing in Moses is he's causing Moses to hate something That's very good and very important for Moses to hate, which is his pride, his self-centeredness. And he's wounding him enough that he will hate it and regret it. This is what the Holy Spirit says earlier in the Bible about Moses. Listen to this about Moses. Quote, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the whole earth. Moses was the most humble man in the world. (laughs) God had brought him that low. All that he'd gone through in Egypt, 
All that he put in his, all the special graces. It had, it had, God had ordained and sovereignly made a man who was the most humble person on the earth. And, and listen to this. This is the result of Moses' humility that God had created. Here's what God says. If there is a prophet among you, he's saying to Israel, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not riddles. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. In another place, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Do you, do you see the equation? Moses is the most humble man on all the earth equals. I speak to him like I speak to my friend. Everybody else gets visions and dreams and riddles. But to the humble guy, the, the most humble guy on the whole face of the earth. What does he get from me? He gets face to face. Word to word, thought to thought, conversation. To the humble guy, he gets intimacy. He gets me. Unfettered. That's what Moses' humility brought him. And that's what God was jealous to protect in Moses' life. In taking something amazingly, wonderfully good for Moses, the promised land, God was doing something much more important. He was preserving Moses for something better. He was protecting Moses from losing something better. And that something is God himself. See, among all the dangers in Moses' proud moment striking the rock was the danger of losing face-to-face friendship, intimacy with Yahweh. That's all Moses was made for from the beginning. That's all. That's why you were created from the beginning. All this other stuff, marriages and houses and churches and cars and cancer and jobs and firings. It's all extra. It's all used by God. Failures and triumphs, blessings and trials. It's, it's all for you to get to the place where you are satisfied with God more than anything else. Where his love is better than your life. Where his glory is your treasure. And he will do anything to get you to that place. He will give anything to you. He will take anything from you. Pride destroys our relationship with God, but humility sustains it. And so God will, will use decades to break you down and build you back up and break me down and build me back up and do things to which we're tempted to say, this is crazy. But what he is making in your heart is something that is so precious to him. It's a... To put it in these words, it's a heart that's able and humble enough to love him, to treasure him, to embrace him the way that he is meant to be treasured and embraced, 
which means you get the greatest thing there is. So God was willing to put Moses through this awful discipline to keep Moses humble so that he could protect his relationship with Moses. That's why God kept saying no when Moses asked him. When, when Moses said, God, can I please go in? And God said, no, you're not going in. Don't talk to him anymore. God was essentially saying to Moses, Moses, it's time to decide what your treasure is. It's time to decide what your treasure is. Is your treasure the promised land? Is your treasure Israel and Palestine and the land of milk and honey? Are you going to let that rule your heart? Is that regret? Is that sadness? Is that grief going to make you keep trying to <laughs> manipulate me and keep trying to uh, live in this place of discouragement? Or are you going to decide that I'm better than that and I'm worth it and that you can let this go? Moses had to come to the place where he realized I've lost the promised land, but I haven't lost my friendship with God. And that's enough. Moses had to decide. And he probably had to decide again and again. But he had to decide. I'm going to let this go. I'm not going to let this eat my life away anymore. God, I've asked. You've said no. I've asked. And you've said don't ask me anymore. Okay. One of the sweetest, most precious, most tenderest moments of the Bible occurs at the end of Moses' life. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. Opposite Beth Poar. No one knows the place of his burial to this day. Do we have that passage? Okay. I'm going to read it again. Listen to it. So Moses the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab. According to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. In the valley of the land of Moab. No one knows the place of his burial. Why does no one know where Moses is buried? Because no one was there to bury him. Right? If somebody had buried Moses, they would have gone down and said, Moses is buried up there. Let's, every year, let's go back and commemorate his burial place. There's only two people in this passage. There's the Lord and Moses. The Lord says to him, here's the land. You're not going in. And then the author tells us, Moses died there and he buried him. The pronoun antecedent to he is Yahweh. Did you see how precious Moses is to God? When I do funerals, I've done several funerals. I spoke at my mom's funeral. You lower the body into the ground. And there's a lot of standing room. There's a canopy to keep from rain. And there's other, but there's only like, usually there's a, a row of five seats or so, a few seats, a handful of seats. 
right in front of the ground, right in front of the hole. And the people who go there are the people who love that person most and who cared about the person most and are most dear to that person. And when the casket is taken out of the church, the people who carry that casket are the people who love that person most, who are most dear to that person usually. A lot of times it's men because physically it can be a heavy thing to carry. But the point is you don't just choose anybody to carry the casket. You don't choose anybody to sit at the ground. It's the, it's the person dearest to you. It's the person, people, it should be the people who loved you most, to whom you were most precious to. And so it's the Lord, Moses' friend. Moses is buried by his best friend. God buries his best friend on earth. God's relationship with Moses was the most important treasure he had, and it far stripped the loss of anything else. And God was jealous to spare Moses no pain to preserve that relationship and protect it. And that's the antidote for regret and for guilt. The solution over past guilt and regret is to not just believe his forgiveness, but to treasure him more than what you have lost. And that sets you free to move forward. Let's think about regret in two ways. Known regrets and imagined regrets. I'm going to talk about known regrets. These are things that you know you've done wrong. Right? We talked about some of them earlier. You married a non-Christian, even though God says you're not supposed to. And the marriage is, is awful. Your anger has damaged your relationship with your child. <laughs> you could have married a Christian and now the marriage is awful. And you look back and think, why did I do this? You wasted a season of life with drugs. And now you're paying for it. In little ways and small. You had an abortion. You cheated on your spouse. Did I mention anger damaging your relationship with your child? Yeah, that's. Bitter, bitter. I mean, I even now look back at moments with my kids. It's just those are the most painful things. And, you know, it matters, right? I mean, you, it matters. You can, you can do what you can do. God's grace is amazing. But you just wonder, God, what have I done? What's going to happen? <laughs> Several things in response. First, God's mercy over your failures must be believed in. God's mercy over your failure must be believed in. If God could forgive one of his other favorite people in the world, David, if he could forgive David intentional, willful adultery, possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly a kind of rape and murder, of her husband to conceal his crime. That's the horror of the human heart. That's King David. If he could forgive that, if he could forgive being abandoned by his best friend, Peter. Yes, he can forgive you. He can forgive you abandoning him. He can forgive you cheating on him in the worst possible ways. Yes, there were consequences for Moses. But Moses knew his sin had not severed him from God's mercy. He didn't walk away from God. He didn't give up. He didn't go into despair. He did what God said. He stopped asking and he helped Joshua get ready. He continued to be faithful to the Lord. 
because he was still able to believe in the Lord's faithfulness to him and his mercy. Listen, doubts can make us feel guilty for everything. You can wonder, you know, should I have been a teacher instead of a lawyer? We can't see the motives of our hearts very well. The choice of a job or a spouse. That's why one of my most favorite verses is from Psalm 19 where David says, Who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Many times we just can't even see why we're doing what we're doing. No one can see it perfectly. But the Holy Spirit led David to write this so that we know that God's mercy is bigger than our failures. It's bigger than our failures that we don't even know about. God knows there are many decisions and choices we look back and wonder, did I do the wrong thing? When we meet Christ face to face, I believe we're going to be overwhelmed with a deeper understanding of just how patient and forgiving God has been. When a lot of times God could have said, you're not going into the promised land, and he doesn't. When a lot of times God says, God could have said, now you're going to have to regret that for the rest of your life. And God doesn't. Or he turns down the, the destruction. He turns down the dial on the harm we've caused and makes our lives much better. I mean, the Bible's clear. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. God is full of compassion. He is slow to anger. So there's a ton, a ton of grace. There's a ton of kindness. There's a ton of mercy. And I think when we see Jesus, we see our lives, we're going to realize, wow, God, I really got... On this earth, not just in heaven, I got way more grace than I ever thought I I did. But even when we know we've messed up and we bear the consequences, God's mercy is still at work. And his mercy is most at work protecting the most important thing, which is your relationship with him. That's what he is after, protecting and preserving. Number two, God's sovereignty over your future must be hoped in. God's sovereignty over your future must be hoped in. Before you were born, God saw all you would do, all the mistakes, all the regret. You look at your life and regret things. But God doesn't regret you. If he thought your life was worth saving unto eternity, who are you? To call it worthless because you've blown it in so many big ways. God knew how you would blow it before you were even born. And he still decided to save you and keep you. And you're going to be, you can't see it. He can see the glory in you already being formed. But one day you're going to be glorious beyond belief. All the sad things you wish were better about yourself. There's going to come a day when you're going to look at yourself and you're going to see nothing but perfection and glory. And you're going to like what you see. You're going to be more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And you're going to give God incredible pleasure. And you're going to have incredible joy in him. But you don't have to wait now. God already loves you. He chose you. Knowing the past. I'm sorry, knowing your past before while it was still future and you're precious to him you're a new creature to him now so in his sovereignty yes he uses pain from past mistakes to teach us to want to grow to pursue him to humble us about who we are apart from his grace but but they also teach us these mistakes are meant to teach us how patient he is how wise
knowing the goodness in God in the midst of our mistakes. Knowing the goodness of God in the midst of our mistakes is much more crucial than any joy that could come from us getting it right. Knowing the goodness of God in the midst of our mistakes, looking back at our mistakes, is much more precious than if we had gotten it right. See, even our sin has to bend the knee to God by showing us how good and sweet he is and how he'll respond to our failings. When I was single, I had been foolish in some relationship choices before I got married. I worried it was going to affect my relationship with Jen. I couldn't figure out all the math on it, but I just was consumed with how I'd mess things up and what I might be suffering or what my life might turn into now because of that. I couldn't see everything, but I know that I was, I'd been foolish. I had done wrong things and at the precipice of this decision about marriage, how much of that was informing the situation now? It was immobilizing. It was paralyzing. And one day on a walk in the woods with God, I I heard him speak these words to my heart from the Psalms. I think it was Psalm 131, I believe. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. David said, I do not involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. See, it was a really freeing thing to realize that it was my pride and not the Lord. It was what David called my proud heart and my haughty eyes that were trying to get me to make perfect sense out of how my past was damaging or calculate or I was trying to figure everything out myself. So I didn't make the wrong mistake. And God helped me see that it was my pride that was trying to get behind God's desk and look at his personal laptop on my life. It, it was my pride that was thinking I could figure out how all the strands of my life's past are now connected to my present, and my future. And I could figure out from that, which which choice to make or which road to go. Yes, God wants us to follow him as best we can, as best we can see him. But just if not more important than that, he wants us to rest in his mercy, not break into his office and go through his files on omniscience and all his sovereign plans. I'm to leave what is unknown to God, even unknown about how I may have messed up my life in the past that he hasn't showed me. My call is to live today, in today. And live before him what is known. There there are so many people today to love God, to to love through God. There are so many people today who need my help. It's a hard fight, but it's the right fight. And it's right in front of me, the fight to live today and not to live chained to the past. And that brings me to my third point. God's call on your life right now must be embraced right now. 
it can be reasonable, even sometimes healthy, like I said before, to have to look back at some mistakes and say, I don't want to make those mistakes again. There is, there is some level of holy grief for sin that is right. But if we live in that regret indulgently, if that regret never leaves, if it controls our mood, if it fills our minds like occupied territory, if we let regret be our time machine to relive the past and predict our future, that's pride. That's not relying on God. We're just trashing God's presence. And we're making an idol out of what might have been and what we hope will be. God has a call on you and me today. He has a will for us today. He has a day of opportunities to love and serve people by trusting him. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's unknown. God meets you here today. And maybe try to think of it this way. If you live dominated by regret, by, by past guilt, you're simply saying the consequences you face today because of those things, are more important to you than simply and humbly being satisfied with who God is for you right now. Moses had to say, yes, I'm sad, but God has a work for me now, and I'm moving on. He is bigger than what I lost. I can't be dominated by my desire for what he has said no to. That would be idolatry. What God wants for me today must be bigger than what we wanted but didn't get. So just to close... Let's take ourselves to that day in the future that's surely coming. It's the day when you and I come before Jesus. And we have to, as he's told us, we have to give an account for our lives. We have to give an account for all the misdeeds we've done. We have to give an account, as he says, for every careless word we spoke. And we have to, as he's told us in his word, watch as some of the work and the fruit of our lives is exposed as worthless and it's burned up before him like chaff as he tells us in first corinthians paul says you will be saved but as through fire it's a day when each of us will see our lives judged and will watch as the results come in we won't be able to hide them and they'll come in without partiality and we'll realize then that many of the things we've done some we didn't even know about. They stand ready before our Savior. We're naked and exposed before whoever else is around. He's letting to see those things call us to, to be sad, to be ashamed, to be full of regret. And as we feel the tears of grief and regret well up in our eyes, he says to us, I have come to wipe every tear from your eye. That's what he says in Revelation 21. I have come to wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying or pain. All that, it's passed away. It's gone. He's telling you this now so that you can live with this promise now. So that you can enjoy through the Holy Spirit a taste of that day now. Every tear wiped away. No more pain. No more grieving. No more crying. It's all passed away. It's all gone. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And we see our Savior. We see his blood washing all the regret away. And we see a cleanness, a newness, a purity of love and goodness cover us completely. We see him perfectly for the first time in our lives, perfectly. And we realize in light of his beauty, in light of his love, in light of his friendship, we can't have any more shame. We can't have any more guilt or regret because we're just too caught up in how perfect and beautiful and loving and forgiving and faithful and kind and gentle and wise and good he is. And he has made all of our mistakes just become trophies of his mercy. They've just become trophies of his forgiveness. Chris, would you mind praying for us? In our hearts, uh, sometimes this word is difficult to believe that all that we hold and uh, sometimes cling to as part of ourselves is something that you can cleanse and wash away. Lord, I pray for this congregation that does change our are broken, that any of us hold, hold to, that uh, separates us from senior glory in our lives. And Lord, please let us take in and, and know for certain your power to sanctify and to cleanse us and to clean us and to take that guilt and regret and even past sins, not only remove them, but you have power over our lives to hold us and keep us from doing those things again. This is your truth and your mercy. That we are, we who um, are in Christ we are new creations. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.